We will look at verses 11 through 15 this morning as we see the judgment at the great white throne. And that was an easy title to come up with today, the great white throne, as that is what we are looking at as we continue our verse-by-verse look at the book of Revelation. Revelation is uh, a perfect book to sum up the Bible as it is summing up time itself. And that is what we are coming to today, the end of time as we know it. Things will, uh, subsequent to this portion that we are studying, uh, will revert to the way that it was before God created everything, except that we will be there with him as believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, before that can take place, however, there is going to be judgment that is carried out in this world, and that's going to happen at the great white throne. One of the wonderful things about the book of Revelation is that it's, it's very clearly laying out a chronology for us of things that are going to take place in the future. That, that is essentially the purpose of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is completing the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the world is very familiar with who he is uh, and the things that he did the first time that he came to the earth. Uh, the world and even Christianity isn't uh, very very well versed in what he's going to do in the future. And that's because we neglect what God's word says. And we come up with strange ways to interpret what it clearly says and these kinds of things. And so we're left with confusion rather than what God is trying to do for us in laying out what will take place in the future so that the people who are there, when it takes place, there will be no mistaking that this is what is described in God's word. And that is very similar to the first time that Christ came to the world. In Galatians chapter 4, it says that, that Jesus came into the world at the express correct time that God wanted him to. And that is because the, the events of Jesus' life laid out very clearly for people that this is the Messiah. That's why the Old Testament says so much about who the Messiah would be when he comes to the earth, where he would be born, how he would be born, the miracles that he would do, uh, how he would die. We saw last week, even in the book of Psalms, you can put these things together. And so people were left without excuse when the Christ came into the world and they rejected him. They're without excuse. And the same exact thing will happen in the future. When he comes again to the earth, there will be a series of events that will take place before he comes to the earth. And we call those, that series of events the, the tribulation period. We even know how long it's going to last. According to God's word, it will last for seven years. And then, subsequent to all of these various judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, uh, two witnesses being in Israel and dying and then rising again, 
from the dead and these wars and, and sicknesses, specific things laid out for people so that they will know, wow, we're, it's getting close now. And as we have seen, uh, believers in Christ will be uh, taken out of the world subsequent to that seven-year period. We won't go through all of that again. Uh, nevertheless, the book of Revelation lays out this clear timeline for uh, how, what the book, how the book was going to be constructed and also for events leading up to the second coming of Christ and then even events after the coming of Christ, a 1,000-year kingdom. And what we are getting to today, actually, the, the very conclusion of that 1,000-year period, this great white throne judgment. And here is our timeline that is essentially what the book of Revelation is all about. Uh, we, we have seen one of our verses that we know this rapture of the church, the taking up of the church body before this tribulation begins is even found right in the book of Revelation, just for, for one piece of evidence in that regard to the message of the church at Philadelphia. Uh, we went into the grammar of this when we studied it. Uh, but it says, uh, where is it? Because you, Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, we, if you'll remember, that's the end of a, a sentence there. Shouldn't be a comment, should be a period there. And then he says, in addition to that, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. You will be taken up out of this world and kept from this seven-year tribulation period, that promise that's made to the church of Philadelphia in that letter, by extension, a promise to all believers. They will be kept from this seven-year tribulation period period uh, that begins with the seal judgments. We're not in the tribulation now. That begins with the first seal. There's peace on the earth at the first seal. There's no peace right now. Uh, there's war in Sudan. There's war in Ukraine. There's war in Israel. There's war everywhere. Uh, and so clearly we're not in the tribulation. We haven't experienced that peaceful time. Shortly after that peaceful time, there will be war and then there will be sickness, and then there will be economic problems, and, and uh, on it goes from there. And then the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, all of these things happen during this seven-year period of time. And then as we saw Revelation 19, Christ comes again at the end of that tribulation period before the 1,000 years, very clearly laid out in Revelation 20. It says it six times for us to be reminded that this period is 1,000 years uh, and every number in the book of Revelation is a, is a number stating a, a number of things. They're not symbolically used. It is describing a 1,000-year period where Jesus Christ will rule and reign upon this earth. Satan will be in the abyss, if you'll remember. Uh, evil will be restrained but yet, 
There's still going to be sin in the world, and nowhere is that more evident than what we studied the last time in uh, the book of, in our study of the book of Revelation, and that is that people are going to rebel against the Lord even though Satan is completely restrained. They're still going to, at the drop of a hat, go against Christ, side with Satan when he is released for a short time and try to come against the Lord foolishly in his capital city of Jerusalem. We saw that in verse 9 of Revelation 20. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. We looked at that language and saw that they are coming up to the broad place of the land, we saw that that could be interpreted as where it's in the NASB, it says earth, it could very likely be land. That's a description of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning from. They came up to that place and they surrounded the camp of the saints where the believers will be. Believers will be with Christ in Jerusalem during this kingdom period. All of this pointing to a literal kingdom uh, wherein Jerusalem is the capital of this kingdom and the nation of Israel is kind of uh, the superpower of the world during that period of time because the very Son of God is going to be the ruler there, ruler over this world. And yet people are still going to rebel against him. They won't have the excuse that Satan made me do this. We are sinful all on our own, even without, without him. However, they're going to be judged. Uh, fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil was uh, justifiably cast into the lake of fire, it says in verse 10, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever there. Another point of emphasis in those verses, it mentions the lake of fire three times, I believe. These are real events, real places that the church today is disregarding. Why are they doing that? Because they're disregarding the very word of God, unfortunately. And that brings us to today where there will be uh, a final judgment of sin and sinful people before we're, we are able to move into the move into what we call the eternal state or eternity with God that is described in Revelation 21 and 22. So all of these things as we've been trying to emphasize are very important. There's this, this isn't just willy-nilly God, uh, deciding to do these things. He created the world and created man to rule over the world, but we failed in that. And we can blame Adam or we could blame Eve, but make no mistake that every one of us would have done precisely the same thing at some point. Uh, we would have failed as well because we are all conceived in sin. But God's plan was for there to be a a, his representative ruling over the earth, and we failed at that. So Satan, uh, being a created being, could say, see, God, you're not so great. Your plan failed, and now I'm in charge. You didn't, you didn't fulfill what you said you wanted to fulfill. And the Bible tells us that, well, 
in actuality, at one point in the future in human history, God is going to succeed in his plan of his representative, Jesus Christ himself, ruling and reigning over a kingdom on this earth, ruling and reigning over this earth exactly the way that God said he wanted the world to be. So yes, God will be victorious. That is the encouragement of a literal kingdom upon the earth. And Christianity kind of casts this aside or spiritualizes this idea of a literal kingdom to our own detriment. Another thing that Christendom is getting into today is getting rid of this lake of fire and saying, oh, that doesn't really exist. It's just a spiritual kind of thing. Uh, God wouldn't do that. He's too nice, and, or whatever the justification is for changing what God's word says. We get, we get rid of truths from his word to our own to our own detriment. And we should not do that. And so today we come to the great white throne, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. We'll first see the dissolution, the dissolution of this world in which we are living. This is the conclusion of time as we know it. The dead will be raised. We'll get in to see uh, exactly who these people are. And we're going to see that they are judged according to their deeds. Notice Revelation 20 and verse 11. This fact that they're being judged according to their deeds gives us a very good indication of who these people actually are. Revelation 20 and verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire." This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I think God is trying to tell us something about the lake of fire, similar to the thousand-year kingdom. There's repetition here. But we begin with the dissolution. Notice again verse 11. It's kind of easy to just skip over Verse 11, particularly if you're familiar uh, with uh, this passage of Scripture and books of the Bible or anything that you've uh, read before in the past several times and you're very familiar with it, it's kind of easy to uh, just skip over things and not think about the details. Verse 11 is a very important detail. It's easy to miss, but we shouldn't. Verse 11, Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. <coughs> Notice first that it, we have this phrase again, then I saw. There is a sequence of events that is being clearly laid out here throughout the book of Revelation, but in particular <coughs> since... Revelation 19, 
when Christ uh, comes again at the end of the tribulation period. Just so we're so we're clear. I'll show you my timeline again here because the details can get confusing. Christ comes to the earth at the end of the tribulation period. We're dealing with the end of the kingdom period. Now, this great white throne judgment is at the end of the 1,000-year kingdom where Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth. But when he comes again at the end of the tribulation... Revelation 19.11, the NASB says, and I saw heaven opened. It could, it's the same word there, same Greek word translated as and or then. And typically it's translated according to the context. I think it ought to be then in verse 11 as well. Then I saw heaven opened. There's a sequence of events. The, the tribulation period ends, uh, the seven year, all the judgments end, then Christ comes again and pours out the, the final judgments. It's really part of the seventh bold judgment is Christ coming again. Then there is a sequence. Verse 17, then after Christ comes again, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice. Uh, verse 20, after Christ comes again and eradicates all the enemies of the earth, uh, another use of the term Kai in verse 20, and the beast was seized, or then the beast was seized and cast into uh, the abyss. Revelation 20 in verse 1, another then uh, is stated, then I saw an angel coming down. Verse 4, then I saw thrones. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. The thousand years are completed. A sequence of events is being laid out for us. And here is another step in the sequence in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. Now, who is, what is this throne and, and who is sitting on it? Uh, we may... Uh, think this is an easy question to answer. It actually is. Theologians like to confuse things and try to make comparisons that aren't there. Uh, one of the principles of kind of scholarship when you get to the PhD level is that your, your thesis, it's got to be something new. You can't just uh, repeat what somebody else has already said, and you got to come up with some new things, and that can be a problem. Um, you, you can, you can easily, you can make, uh, you can come up with some new concept or new idea about what something, uh, means or, or it's just a very slippery slope. Let's put it that, well, let's put it that way. If you're dreaming up new ideas about what the Bible says, that can, that can be an issue because it's the truth. People in the past could be wrong and you could be refuting wrong ideas that people had and that may be, quote-unquote, a new idea. That's perfectly fine when people are, are wrong in their interpretation and you're, you're kind of retelling it as, as it's stated in the Scriptures. That's completely fine. 
But uh, theologians will try to make this throne into the same as the throne in the thrones that we see in Revelation 20 and verse 4. Uh, well, that's an issue because this says, Then I saw a great white throne, singular. Revelation 20 and verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Two completely different uh, throne, sets of thrones. This is a set of one, not a set of several, as we saw in Revelation 20 and verse 4, not to mention the fact that this is at least a thousand years uh, into the future from Revelation 20 and verse 4. And so clearly it's not that. This, this is God's throne. Hence it is described as great, uh, large or great in, in, uh, in its magnificence. The dispute about what that could actually mean. Is it a super huge throne, like big in size? Or is it just great as in wonderful and perfect? Uh, maybe both. <laughs> yes, could be a good answer to that. It doesn't specifically say. Certainly it is great in its appearance and great in its significance. Uh, without without a doubt. In him who sat upon it, he, he is unnamed here, but it is clearly God who is the one who is, is doing the judging here. He is the one sitting upon the throne. This is a technique that John, the apostle John uses quite often. He used it of himself throughout the, his gospel, the gospel of John. He was kind of the unnamed disciple as a, as a way, a uh, uh, description of his humility or a consequence of his humility that he did not name himself. And here he's not naming God as the one who's sitting on the throne. It's, it's obvious. It doesn't need to be stated that he is the one sitting on the throne. And, and this throne is not only great, but it's also white, it says. The great white throne and him who sat upon it this this uh the color here is being uh, representative of perfection or representative of righteousness the righteous judgment that is going to take place upon this throne it is a perfect judgment perfectly righteous and uh, perfect justice is going to be administered from this throne because the one who is sitting on it is perfect and righteous and just. And there, unfortunately, uh, there is an awful lot of talk, awful lot of talk about justice and uh, these kinds of things in our society and even within Christendom. They have a very, very uh, misunderstood or misapplied use of the term justice when they do this. In uh, our justice system, there's a lot of complaints about our justice system. Our justice system isn't perfect because imperfect people are part of it. However, the design of it is to find the truth. And that's ultimately, that's what is the arbiter of justice. It's the truth. And that's why God can make this judgment because he is truth. And so, of course, he will be an arbiter of truth. But our justice system, while not being perfect at its root, it is designed to find 
Uh, it is designed in such a way so that fallible people will be able to get to the truth of the situation. And that's make a judgment based on the evidence to find the truth of essentially whether or not this person committed this crime or whatever is, is under trial. Find the facts of the matter. It seeks to find the truth. And that's what true justice is about. That's why in the, the depictions of the, the woman holding the scales by the Supreme Court and oftentimes in courtrooms, uh, the woman is blindfolded holding the scales because she's not looking at the, the color of the person's skin, their background, how much money they make. None of that comes into, into play in determining the truth of the situation. It's what, what tips the scales more based on the evidence. And so justice, again, it has to do with truth and righteousness. And in, in criminal courts, it has to do whether or not the person committed the crime. It has nothing to do with their culture, background, race, any of that. It has to do with whether or not this person committed the crime. And our nation is losing grips with this idea, which is a shame. The church is losing grips with this as our society crumbles. Uh, the church crumbles and then society crumbles right along with it. I think that's kind of fair to say. And so while uh, we see this term social justice being thrown around uh, in the church, it has very little to do with justice, biblical justice, the truth, and has everything to do with the first word in it, social, and you can add a little ism, on to the end of that. Socialism is what social justice has to do with. And that's very, very unfortunate. And the leaders of this movement are oftentimes socialists themselves. And so they're just perpetuating that within the church, which is very unfortunate. We need to be concerned with the truth as God is very concerned with the truth and administering justice according to the truth. And there's only one standard of truth. And uh, in this case, it's very obvious. It is God's standard. He is truth. And that's what we need to be concerned with. But notice this next phrase here. Uh, Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Uh, I take this to be this earth that we are living in at the end of the thousand year kingdom is going to be burnt up and disappear. The very elements themselves are going to melt away because of the intensity of the heat of this process where the heaven and earth disappear at the end of the thousand year kingdom. Uh, the NET Bible, the NET Bible, that's a Bible that's put out by uh, Dallas Seminary. Uh, it's got some, it has a lot of very interesting translational notes in it. It's not uh, always great, but many, many times it is very, very, very good. Very good insight into the translation of uh, what the translators were thinking when they translated it such as they did. They have a note with this particular passage, the, and it says, the phrase, 
the earth and heaven fled from his presence can be understood, one, as visual imagery representing the fear of corruptible matter in the presence of God, but two, it can also be understood more literally as the dissolution of the universe as we know it in preparation for the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth. You can't have a new heaven and a new earth without the old earth and the old heaven passing away. And that is what is taking place right here in Revelation 20 and verse 11, or at least there's a reference to it. And you'll notice the, the, the language there from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. This has happened when John sees this great white throne judgment. Oh, by the way, heaven and earth passed away too before this takes place. That gives us an indication of how great, how awesome the sight of God on his throne is that, oh yeah, there used to be an earth and a heaven. Oh, that's gone now. Now we see God on his throne. That, that ought to give us some insight into the incredible nature of seeing God upon his throne. But this idea of heaven and earth uh, kind of just disappearing uh, were, were, I was reminded of our study of the book of Colossians, if you'll remember, several years ago. Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created, it says, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is literally holding the world together. And one day at the end of the thousand year kingdom, He's going to decide to not hold it together anymore. Whatever the uh, chemical forces and all of these things, God has designed this world to hold together uh, the electrical bonds and chemical bonds of all of the, the atoms of the universe being held together by the power of God himself. Just the same way that he spoke it into existence, he's going to uh, end its existence by not holding it together anymore and it will be burned up. And this is according to the scriptures. That's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 10, uh, where Peter says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, they'll make reference, it escapes their notice that God created the world. He judged, he's already judged it once by water. Uh, and then he uses numbers in a poetic way in verse eight, unlike what John is using when he describes a thousand year period, he means literally a thousand years. Peter here is using the, the concept that to the Lord, he created time. He's always been in existence. He always will be in existence. So therefore, one day is like a thousand years to him. He already has it planned out, in other words. Uh, and the fact that it's taken him 2,000 years since Christ came to the world to carry out these things, yeah, don't worry about that. Because to the Lord, 
one day is as a thousand years. So at this point, it's been two days for the Lord since Christ came to the earth. We just kind of need to chill out and take God's perspective on time, the passage of time. That's Peter's, that's Peter's point here. And he's doing that for a reason. Why is he taking 2,000 years before he comes again? Because he wants every single person to be saved. Jesus Christ came into the world and died for the sins of the world on the cross. And, he, and each moment that passes is more time for people to trust in what he has done for them. That's his desire. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But make no mistake, one day the time is going to run out. And there are several kind of uh, time marks where it's going to get more and more difficult for people to come to faith in Christ. One of those is at the rapture of the church. Uh, I think there will be a great outpouring uh, or a great uh, time of salvation We've seen that, the masses of people who will believe during the, re the tribulation period. We saw them described earlier in the book, but make no mistake, there's also going to be great delusion in the world that Paul references in 2 Thessalonians. It, it is going to be difficult for people to believe. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be completely easy for every single person to believe, even during the thousand-year kingdom period. We saw a, an unnumerable number of people are going to rebel against Christ in the end. Those are unbelieving people. But make no mistake, verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That will take place at the end of the thousand-year kingdom period, as is being described here in Revelation 20 and verse 11. So again, this great white throne judgment expressly stated here, no mistaking it, via the language of, of this passage, this great white throne judgment happens at the end of the thousand-year kingdom upon the earth. And uh, it will happen. I guess we need to add another thing. This is how your timelines get really compli complicated. The heavens and the earth are pass, pass away, and then this great white throne judgment takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, one of the mistakes that other viewpoints make on this, particularly post-millennialism, uh, have this viewpoint that this great white throne judgment is all the judgments that are in the Bible. The judgment seat of Christ, oh, that's just the great white throne judgment. The sheep and the goat judgment, oh, that's just the great white throne judgment. Every time you see judgment in the Bible, uh, post-millennialists and, and other viewpoints will just kind of lump them all together into this one. 
And uh, that just doesn't work. Particularly, very obviously, the sheep and the goat judgment in Matthew 25, if you'll remember, that's Christ comes again to the earth at the end of the tribulation, and then he's going to judge uh, Jewish people and Gentile people. Sheep and the goat is uh, Gentile people who have survived the tribulation period to see whether or not they will be allowed to go into the kingdom period. That must take place before the kingdom period. This judgment very clearly, explicitly stated, takes place at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. That's the importance of consistent, literal interpretation. So this world and all of its works, and everything that takes place here is going to be burned up. It's often been stated that there are only two things that are going to go into eternity, that's people and God's Word. And so what ought we to be about in this world? How should we, what should be important in our lives? It doesn't mean you can't be involved in other activities and these kinds of these kinds of things. However, there are some things that ought to be the priority of our life. And number one is people. We ought to be about people and giving them the word of God, giving them the gospel so that they can trust in Christ and avoid this judgment that is about to take place as we see here in uh, the dead. Notice verse 12. Again, we have that word uh, kai there at the beginning of the sentence, and or then, so uh, heaven and earth has passed away. John sees God on his throne, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. John, uh, again, here we see that he is an eyewitness here. I saw the dead. Another uh, kind of... uh, indication to his audience that he is the one who is seeing this. His audience, these people that he wrote this book to, knew who he was, knew he was an apostle, knew that he was trustworthy. And as we've seen, he is appealing to being an eyewitness of these events over and over and over. And he is telling them that he sees the great and the small. That's uh, uh, you, or it's not, hopefully not you, but it's small people, it's great people, and everybody in between. Uh, we saw this in our study last week. It's a, a figure of speech known as a mayorism. When he says the great and the small, it's just a poetic way of saying from the first to the last and everything in between is the implication. And also he talks about the sea. Oh yeah, what about the people who died and and were thrown overboard on a ship. Yep, they're going to be there too. Uh, oh, what about people who died a long time ago and they've been uh, dead for a while? They they've been in Hades ever ever since uh, whenever they died five thousand years ago. What about them? Yes, 
them, them too, every single person. And I'm going to make the point that this is the unsaved from all time. Not saved people. If you are a person who has trusted in Christ or your relative from 100 years ago has trusted, trusted in Christ, they will not be in this judgment because as, as we have seen already, uh, they have already been judged at some uh, other point. All saved people have been already judged and will not be judged here. And the big indication of this is the way that they are being judged, that they are being judged for their deeds. And that is a a very big clue to us that these are unsaved people because as we will see, you and I are not judged based on our deeds. We are rewarded based on our deeds, or we lose reward based on our deeds as Christians. It is not, our judgment is not a determination of whether we will be with Christ forever in eternity. That is a settled matter because we have trusted in Christ, but I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) But notice that these people are standing there. I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. If you'll remember Uh, a a few weeks ago, over the last several weeks, at least in our study of Revelation, we've been talking a lot about resurrections and people being resurrected at various times. And they they are said to be uh, brought to life. Every time that it's speaking of righteous people, they're resurrected to life. And we saw that that was the first resurrection. There's no mention of life here, but these people are standing there. That is a a clue to us that it is another resurrection, but it certainly cannot be the church who is standing here. We were already, the church was already resurrected at the rapture of the church and taken to heaven and, and with Christ in the places that he's preparing for us. And then we come again with him to the earth. We rule and reign with him Uh, We've already ruled and reigned with him. Clearly, the church has already been judged. There's no reason for us to be judged again here. Uh, This isn't tribulation saints. They've already been resurrected at the second coming of Christ. We saw that a few weeks ago. It's not uh, the righteous people from the kingdom period. They too have already been resurrected. We saw that. Uh, In verse 5 of Revelation 20, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, it says there. If you'll remember that first resurrection, it, it is a resurrection that happens in several stages, but it is a resurrection to life. That is what the resurrection, the first resurrection is a resurrection to life, including Uh, All the righteous from all of time, essentially, is what that is entailing. But it happens at different times. Christ, of course, was the first person to be resurrected. And then the church will be resurrected at the rapture of the church. And then tribulation saints will be resurrected. Verse 4 of Revelation 20, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony Uh, They hadn't received the the mark of the beast. 
and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So at the end of the tribulation, before the thousand years begin, they come to life and rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Verse five, the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the end. Uh, that's the first resurrection. So those people are included with the church and tribulation saints. And we saw that Israel has a promise of the righteous being resurrected, entering into the kingdom as well. Daniel 12 describes that. Uh, and so this is not that. The righteous people have already been resurrected, given life, judged, and enter into the kingdom or live during the kingdom period and then are resurrected to life, it says in, in Revelation 20 and verse 5. These people are not being resurrected to life. They are described as nothing but dead, even though they are resurrected. We have a, a misunderstanding of the term dead. Death is not ceasing to exist. Dead is being separated from something. That's why James says that if your faith is uh, separated from its intended works, it's dead. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means it's not connected to the thing that it's supposed to be connected to. God saves us to serve him. And so we ought to be serving him as saved people. If we're not, our faith is dead in this life. It's not fulfilling its purpose. People die spiritually. We are all born spiritually dead, separated from God because we're sinful people. We have life because Christ died for us. We trust in him. He indwells us with his Holy Spirit. After we've trusted in him, he gives us life. And now we are connected to Christ. We're connected to God through Christ. We are in Christ. That's how Paul describes it. We're no longer spiritually dead. We're spiritually alive because Christ is in us and we are in Christ. These people are said to be dead because they're separated from God because of their sin. And they are going to be judged on the basis of their works. And this uh, chart's a little bit jumbled, but we need to keep in in mind, there are four different judgments of God that are described in the Bible. The judgment seat of Christ, That's what, and these are distinct. These are not the same. It's not one big giant judgment at one point in time. These are actually uh, four judgments that happen in different places at different times. These two passing under the rod and sheep and goats are similar but different. Judgment seat of Christ, that will happen sometime subsequent to the rapture where church age believers will be caught up. Every person during the church age who has trusted in Christ will be resurrected or caught up alive and instantly changed into a glorified body and we will be judged. Uh, Based on our works as believers, we will either receive reward or lose reward. Not a judgment for sin. Sin is sin's out of the question as a, as a believer in this judgment. It is a time of, of reward or a time of loss of reward. It's not all going to be a bed of roses. 
uh, I can assure that, that uh, well, I'll speak for myself. I'm sure I'll have regrets. Could have done, could have done better in areas of life. And that will become evident to me at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's going to become evident to you too, as a believer. But we will all face that. We're all saved. 1 Corinthians 3.10, people who have trusted in Christ are all saved. And whether you've done a, a led a church of 10,000 people, or you've uh, helped one old lady across the street at one time in your life, uh, you're going to uh, get through the other side of this judgment and you will enjoy eternity with God. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 3. But we all face this judgment. Passing under the rod, you can read about that in Ezekiel 20. These are Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israelite, Jewish people will be judged. And it's called passing under the rod because God is, it says there, Christ will hold out a rod. Those who pass under will enter into the kingdom. Uh, Those who do not pass the judgment will not. That judgment is going to be based on faith in Christ as the Messiah, same as, as ours is, essentially, that we're there because we're, we have trusted in Christ. This one is a little bit different. You're either in or out, depending on whether or not you've trusted. Sheep and the goats, this is a judgment found in Matthew 25. It's for Gentile people uh, that says that at the end of the tribulation, the nations will come before Christ and they will be judged. They're, notice close reading of that. They're separated before any judgment is laid out. God, Christ knows who are his and who are not his. He separates them and then he judges them based on the deeds. But they're separated beforehand. I believe they're separated beforehand because they're separated by whether or not they've trusted in Christ. And then their works during the tribulation period are a manifestation of what they've believed. That's the reason for the language there. But that's different than this judgment. And it's certainly different from the great white throne judgment. Again, sheep and the goats happens at the end of the tribulation. Great white throne judgment happens at the end of the 1,000 years. It is unbelievers being resurrected uh, unbelievers from all time, from Adam and Eve forward, every person who hasn't believed in God for the forgiveness of their sins will stand at this judgment and will be judged based on their deeds. Notice uh, Revelation 20 And verse 12 again, it says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Notice the repetition. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So notice that these books are opened. 
Uh, there can be confusion about this as well. We have we've discussed this in earlier lessons, so I won't go too much into this. Uh, but the the book of life in particular has already been mentioned in Revelation, and we talked about it then. Uh, but at any rate, there is some of these books are a register of our deeds. Our deeds are being recorded in heaven. That ought to make us wake up. There's gonna there's some reason. Uh, yes, Jesus is omnipotent. He doesn't need to write it down in a book to uh, uh, keep track of everything that we've ever done in our lives. However, it is. And the books are kind of for our sake, not, not for his. Uh, but our call to worship this morning, Psalm 56, in verse 8, it says, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Our actions are recorded. Malachi 3.16 also mentions this same idea. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Our, our good works are recorded, and our not-so-good works are recorded as well. That's one of the, the books that is mentioned, a register of our deeds. And there is another book, which is the book of life that is mentioned here. And as we have talked about this before, we don't want to create our concept of what the book of life is from just one passage when it's mentioned in several places in the Bible. And so when we put all of those passages together that mention the book of life, it would appear that it is a book of all people who will ever live. And that's why names are written in from the foundation of the world, because, well, God knows everything and he knows every single person who's ever going to live. Again, a, an indication of the importance of human life and all of these kinds of things, but we know that names can be blotted out of this book. According to Psalm 69 and verse 28, David says, may they, these unrighteous people, be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. So everybody's name starts out in the book of life. That's why it's called the book of life. It's not the book of life because the people who end up at the end have life. No, it is the book of life because it's every person who will ever live, but your name can be blotted out of this book. And the, this uh, original list is the people for whom Christ died. He died for every single person who has lived, who ever will live, upon this planet, whoever's name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, that's who Jesus died for. 1 John 2, 2, for, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is why we can, without hesitation, give the gospel to any person because Christ died for them. Uh, Luke 10 and verse 20, Jesus makes reference to this book of life. 
to the disciples that he sent out into the cities. They were very excited because even the evil spirits are listening to them. They're able to cast them out. Isn't this amazing? These great powers that we now have. Uh, Jesus kind of brings them back to earth. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this and the spirit, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Uh, the greatest work that we could do pales in comparison to the fact that our names are recorded in heaven. We have eternal life if you have trusted in Christ. And so therefore, this book of life, in the end, it becomes a final register of all of the saved people. That's why these individuals, their names are not found there. There's They are then subsequently cast into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, this isn't for God's purpose. This is for our purpose so that nobody can can claim, you know, oh, you made a mistake, God. No, it's written down here in this heavenly book and your name doesn't appear here. And so therefore, you are going to have to be judged based on your deeds. And oh, by the way, we have another book for that one too. No person is going to be able to give the excuse uh, that they just didn't know or uh, this kind of this kind of thing. Well, you didn't choose me, God. That could be somebody's excuse. Ah, uh, no, that doesn't hold up. Your sins were paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world, and now it is incumbent upon you to trust in what He has done, so that you can receive righteousness or you can take a chance and and see if your works are going to end up uh, being enough. So these unsaved are judged according to their deeds. And it's a fair judgment because it's it's written down, it's recorded, it's there, it's the truth. There's There's no denying it, sort of like the Bible is the truth. There's no getting around some of the the uh, things that are mentioned here. And this is, the, their character is what is being displayed in their works. Jesus said in Matthew seven sixteen, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? These people are demonstrating their character in their works, and then therefore they are being judged by what they have done. Verse 14, again, it says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, cast into the lake of fire. It's repeated three times here. This is to remind us that sin has eternal consequences. Uh, This is the biblical method throughout. You see it all the time that when an author wants to emphasize a point like, oh, I don't know, a 1,000 year kingdom, he says it over and over and over so we get the point. If the authors of the Bible want to emphasize how we have eternal life, they repeat it like John does in the Gospel of John, that you have eternal life by a single condition and that is faith. In Christ, he says it a hundred times. 
in the Gospel of John. And you know, if you compared the Gospel of John to a novel, it's, it's tiny. <laughs> it's not a big book. And he says it a hundred times so that we can understand that we are saved not by our works, because guess what? Your deeds aren't going to measure up to the righteousness of Christ. You can only have the righteousness of Christ through faith in what he's done. That's the gift that is offered to you. You can receive it by way of faith, or you can take your chances with your deeds uh, matching up to the righteousness of God himself. And that's a fool's errand. I'll just I'll give you the answer right now. They aren't going to match up, similar to what we see here, that every single person who hasn't trusted in Christ is going to be resurrected at the end of the thousand-year kingdom after heaven and earth have passed away. They will stand before God Almighty on his throne and they will be judged according to their deeds. And what I read here not a single person is is going to make it because your deeds will never match up. The good news is that we as believers and people in general have the opportunity to not be at this judgment. God is telling us about this future event so that we avoid it, so that we're not standing there. We can have righteousness imputed to us or given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we have his righteousness given to us. His righteousness does away with our evil deeds, our deeds that aren't pleasing to God, our lying, our, like we learned in uh, our Proverbs study, study this morning, our pride, our lying, our evil schemes, our spreading strife among the brethren, whatever it is that your sin is, Jesus Christ died for it on the cross, and you receive eternal life or righteousness by faith in him, not by works. Romans 4.4, 4. now to the one who works, his wage is credited as a favor. Not, not His wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. Uh, Paul, using a, a labor example that we all understand, you go to work and your boss gives you your pay at the end of the day. He's not, that's not a favor. You earned it. You worked, so he gives it to you. Guess what? Our works are exactly the same before God. Uh, and if salvation were by works, then we would be earning it. And as Paul says in sec, uh, Ephesians 2, 9, we would boast about it because we're sinful. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So if we cease from working, and believe in or trust in what Christ has done for us on the cross, he gives us righteousness, not based on our deeds. In fact, the exact opposite of our deeds. Ceasing from working and trusting in what Christ has done, and then we will be rewarded for our good works. Rewarded, given a reward, not salvation, but 
some uh, kudos. Way to go. Good job. Maybe you'll get a, a crown or something like that, and then you're just going to give it back to Jesus anyway, but you will be rewarded for your good works. Second John 8 says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. You'll be rewarded for good works, uh, but you're given righteousness based on not good works, but on faith. These people are going to be rewarded for their works. They're going to get exactly what they've earned. In their foolish pride, they think that they can do the works of God, essentially. If you think you're earning salvation, you think you are able to do works equivalent to what God can do. And that's, very, that's a very foolish place to find yourself, because in the end, you will find yourself here in Revelation 20 and verse 11 at the judgment throne of God and it won't end well for you. But it can end well for you. That's the good news. You can trust in Christ, and you don't have to worry about the great white throne judgment. You don't have to worry about the lake of fire. That has been taken care of for you in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation, this ancient text that shows us so much about our life today and life in the future. We thank you that you came into this world to die for sinners such as me and that uh, we can have righteousness through faith in you and what you've done for us. May we uh, be trusting in you and you alone for our salvation. And then because you have done this great thing for us, may we be motivated to live for you each moment of the day. I just pray that you would impress this message upon our hearts, the, the importance of the gospel and the truth of salvation through faith in you, so much so that we want to tell others about it so they can avoid this great white throne judgment in the future. And we will give you all of the praise and the glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace and